This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Listen, uh, we've already talked about it a lot, and rightfully so, because this, too, is among our most read on the Bloomberg. It's all over social media as well. And we're talking about Bitcoin. We're talking about Elon Musk. And, Tim, we're talking about Tesla. Yeah, it's been hovering at about 10% higher all day today. Yeah. Since about 7.30 this morning when we learned that Tesla had made a $1.5 billion investment in Bitcoin and also said, hey, we're going to start accepting Bitcoin uh, for Tesla's. Caught our attention too, right? In the newsroom. Hey, let's get uh, into it with uh, Bloomberg News Markets Editor Joe Weisenthal, co-host of Wedge Miss, coming your way at 4.30 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg TV. Joe is socially distanced on the phone in our New York mm-hmm. Bureau. Hey, Joe Weisenthal, good to have you here. I mean, it's a Bitcoin story, but it's also a Tesla story. How do you see this, like when you heard the news this morning? I mean, I wasn't really surprised. It's interesting because I feel like in this market environment, Tesla and Bitcoin have been like co-linked even when they weren't officially linked. If you know what I mean, it's like their charts look similar, the stories look similar, something that seems completely different than the sort of mainstream sort of iconoclastic. So I feel like there was something like inevitable like only a matter of time, but I'm sure like the like the crossover of like Bitcoin holders and Elon fanboys is a, you know, if it was a Venn diagram, it'd be very close to a circle. <laughs> and so it almost feels like perfect now that like this makes it a, this makes the marriage official. Well, Joe, you said something really interesting on, on our quick take live stream this yeah. morning um, that I hadn't thought of, but it was this idea when a company starts to accept Bitcoin, like Tesla announced today, it, it's actually not that big of a deal. Right. Um, why is that? I think, you know, like, in the end, it's like when 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 Tesla is selling a car for like forty thousand dollars, say, or fifty thousand dollars. It says oh, you can buy this in Bitcoin. All that's really happening is they're letting you enter in money into a sort of like Bitcoin transaction processor that then converts it into dollars, or vice versa, or the other way around. So it's as if they're saying, okay, we accept it in euros, and then somewhere in the background they do a uh, conversion. It's not really that powerful. What's powerful in theory, and we haven't seen this, is when we start to see transactions that are really denominated in Bitcoin. And so, in other words, if a company like, say, Tesla were to say, here's our car, and for the next year, it's going to be priced one Bitcoin each or two Bitcoin each. And then if the price of Bitcoin fluctuates, it's still priced in that Bitcoin. And so, therefore, let's say even Bitcoin were to fall in half which is very possible because it's very volatile, then you would still be able to buy it for one Bitcoin. Then you start to see a system of uh, um, obligations and payments that are truly denominated in Bitcoin. As it is, it's more like a dollar transaction that's converted. So it's kind of cool, it's kind of fun, but it doesn't really mean that the item is priced in Bitcoin. As such, Bitcoin isn't really then a unit of account. All right, Joe, but you can, and you can yeah. buy other things in Bitcoin. We know yeah, that. Totally. But... It's Elon Musk and, it, and and it's Tesla doing it. Does is there somehow yeah. we should read into it in terms of the company that's doing it and the brand? I mean, this well, is, I would say this. Yeah. So I would say if you look at a lot of like Bitcoin holders, they're very reluctant to spend their Bitcoin because they all think it's going to go way higher in the future. 
And so no matter what it is, even if it's available, they're probably not going to do it. On the other hand, they might make an exception for Tesla because Elon's cool because he's made a point of putting some of the company's treasury into um, into Bitcoin itself. Then that could be the kind of thing where it's like I could imagine some small subset of the Bitcoin holding population that's like, you know what? I always said I wasn't going to spend my Bitcoin until, you know, Bitcoin was the new global unit of account or until Bitcoin is worth more than gold. But for Elon, in this case, because I get to be part of the story, because I get to be part of validating someone who's, you know, the richest guy in the world, maybe I'll buy Bitcoin with my Tesla. And I suspect some people will do that, even if they sort of uh, don't really feel like they should be spending it. Uh, a billion and a half dollars. It's it's not actually that much money for Tesla in 2021, or of course, Elon Musk either. Uh, what do you make of the figure that they announced this morning? I mean, that's the thing. It's not like even that much, really. So like, given Tesla's market cap, given that Elon's the richest person in the world, um, it's not that much. On the other hand, you know, it's like it, as big as Bitcoin is, and I think like the total value is something like three quarters of a trillion dollars. You know, you still can't make that big purchases without um, making waves. So, you know, I think it's like I think what I said this morning is like I think Elon's having a lot of fun right now. And I think he's when not is he taking, not exactly? <laughs> and so we're in the stage where part of having fun, if you're like a rich billionaire, is having fun with like cryptocurrencies, and this is his way of doing it. It's not a huge risk for Tesla's balance sheet one way or another, but it's kind of like him being part of the story. And Tesla's got cars, and he's got rockets, and now he's got cryptocurrencies, <laughs> and it's all part of the uh, it's all part of the fun. Having said that, you know, yeah. we've been talking with you about Bitcoin for a while and several yeah. years, I feel like at this point. But is there something different about kind of the conversation and the stories that we're seeing surrounding Bitcoin at this point? Does it feel like it's becoming a little bit more legit? Legitimate? I think so. I, I think so. I mean, look, you definitely have institutions that are willing to put at least some small allocation of their wealth into it. I think a lot of the story of 2020 was this idea of like Bitcoin emerging as a uh, as a store of wealth, and that's sort of like the new meme, which is that it's a savings vehicle, kind of like gold is. It's like yes, it's not really great for spending, but just like gold is not great for spending, <laughs> but Bitcoin kind of is a sort of uh, you know a save store of wealth type of vehicle. And so then naturally you have a few institutions at ultimately very small levels like dipping their toe in from that perspective. All right. Good stuff. Always good. Thank you so much. And you got a busy day, busy afternoon. Joe Weisenthal, market editor at Bloomberg News, co-host of What You Miss, coming your way at 4.30 p.m. Wall Street Time on Bloomberg TV. So be sure to check him out. He's always got smart guests, smart conversations. Uh, and you've got to, I always read his five things to read that you've got to know. Who doesn't? Morning. I know, right? It's just like, bam, 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 everything I need to know. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. So a bunch of things going on when it comes to the virus and vaccine. Tim mentioned uh, about AstraZeneca, South Africa, temporary halting the rollout there. New York City indoor dining is going to resume on Friday, two days earlier than planned. And we are seeing, Tim, coronavirus infections continuing to slow across the globe. India, though, um, some good news reporting fewer than 100 fatalities for the third day in a row. And I know they've been struggling. Yeah, and even more locally here in New York, indoor dining is going to resume Friday at 25% capacity. 
Meridian Middle Schools are going to reopen on February 25th. Which is really, really good. I know a lot of parents have been hoping kids could get back to school. Uh, global cases, though, uh, exceeding 106 million. Deaths passing 2.3 million. Uh, more than 131 million shots, though, have been given around the globe. Let's get back to uh, a guest, someone who has come to us several times throughout the pandemic, is Dr. Iman Abuzaid. She is CEO and co-founder at Incredible Health. Uh, and her company, just a reminder, connects hospitals with nurses and other healthcare workers. She is with us once again on the phone in San Francisco. Uh, Dr. Abu Zaid, nice to have you back uh, here on Bloomberg. How are you? And tell me what you're seeing uh, from day to day when it comes to the virus and cases and hospitalizations, and then what you're seeing in terms of the vaccine rollout. Have have most of the folks um, that you've seen that are healthcare workers gotten vaccinated? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, what we're seeing in our in our data and with you know interacting with our customers, uh, you know, over 300 hospitals and health systems use our software to hire nurses in permanent roles um, across the country. And what we're seeing is actually the majority, over 70, you know, over 75 percent of the nurses uh, in these permanent roles have already been vaccinated, which is great news. Uh, but the, the real question is, like, how come it hasn't been 100 percent yet? Right. Because uh, yeah. that's what we really need to get to. Um, and there seems to be two factors. One is a supply shortage uh, that your team has already had has just mentioned. The second factor, which is a little bit more um, nuanced, is there is still some fear among healthcare workers about taking the vaccine. Um, a lot of that has to has to do with. Uh, you know, quite a quite a lot of distrust has built up between healthcare workers and their employers, and healthcare workers and the government when it comes to management of the pandemic. Um, there, there's still a subset of workers that are pretty resistant to mandates, and um, just there's just some distrust out there. And so, I think probably the biggest factor we can do over the next few weeks is explaining clearly the research behind the vaccines, um, just kind of the, just a little bit more detail on it to get more healthcare workers comfortable with it. So we can get to the uh, to the 100 percent of them vaccinated. How are the nurses doing in terms of of workload? And we heard so much early on in the pandemic about so many of these healthcare workers just being overworked and exhausted. And there were so many stories about that. Has that eased up as as hospitals have? I don't want to say you know, gotten better because in different parts of the country at any given moment, different hospitals are experiencing different things. But as the pandemic has worn on. Yeah, no, unfortunately, that has not gotten better. Wow. If anything, it's become a more widespread throughout the country. Um, in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, March last year, you know, the emphasis was really on the on the Northeast. Uh, but now at this point, you know, we're talking February 2021. Uh, the pandemic is widespread throughout many states. And so every single hospital and health system we work with is uh, reporting uh, staff shortages, severe staff shortages, uh, difficulties in getting enough staff. Um to fill these units because, you know, there's a high, very high patient demand that's been caused by the pandemic. Uh, and then what nurses are reporting is like, you know, over two thirds of them are reporting uh, high anxiety, high stress related to the pandemic and related to being overworked. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, it has not eased up yet. Uh, but hopefully as cases go down and number of hospitalizations go down over the next few months, we, you know, we're, we're hopeful that things will get a little bit better. Are you feeling just got about 25 seconds uh, left that you are you feeling like maybe by summer things start to feel, quote unquote, more normal? Uh, that it really that really just depends on how the you know community um, reacts to, to, to the vaccine and, and, and how quickly the vaccine rollout uh, can be. 
Um, right now, there is a lot of frustration from health care workers towards their local communities who are not necessarily following guidelines, um, you know, mandates, masks, so on, and, and it's just putting more health care workers at risk. So hopefully um, the public health messaging will get better and will be accepted by, by communities, and that's really what this is going to hinge on. All right, going to leave it on that note. Hey, uh, Iman, nice to have you back with us. Dr. Iman Abu Zaid, CEO and co-founder at Incredible Health, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. You know, it definitely feels like we're making progress, but... Yeah, it was really surprising for me to hear that it hasn't the, the, the workload hasn't eased up, eased up for these healthcare workers. Yeah, it's still pretty tough on them. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. It's a real-world illustration of a venture capitalist fantasy about the future of media. We're talking about the tiny tech startup Substack that's reaching existential scale in the media industry. So writes Ellen Hewitt. This story is really interesting. I didn't know about them. You didn't know about it? It's it's. <clears throat> we're going to let Ellen and Joel talk about it, but yeah. it's mind-blowing how much some of these writers make. Over a million dollars a year. Pretty remarkable. So she writes about it for Bloomberg Business Week. Let's get into her story. She is startups reporter Ellen Hewitt on the phone in San Francisco, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. First of all, how did I mean? How did this come to your attention, or how did you guys think about you wanted to put this in the magazine? Well, it's been um, a business that is uh, has really caught a lot of a, pe- a lot of people's attention um, very quickly, um, in part because of those numbers that you just mentioned, and yeah. because of the disruptive potential. Um, and this, you know, what I like love about it is that it's this company that's effectively invisible. Um, and that was one that we sort of just asked Ellen to kind of take a look at. And her, she being the amazing reporter that she is, like, came back to us with, like, a fully realized idea, you know, which is the best part about working with people like <laughs> Ellen at Bloomberg. Um, but the thing that, you know, has really struck everyone with it is, like, it, you know, this invisible company that is basically taking over the software that generates a lot of the emails that you probably receive um, without even realizing that they're really the company underpinning it all. Uh, so, so Ellen, like rewind the clock, what was the opportunity that, that Substack uh, saw and, and set out to capture? Yeah, they launched in 2017 and it's been actually kind of a really slow growth until I would say early 2020 or even mid 2020. They, they did exactly what you were explaining. They saw that there were some a few independent writers out there, including a guy named Ben Thompson, who runs a very popular um, tech strategy analysis blog, who who were doing writing um, independently, and they had an audience of people who were willing to pay for access to, you know, this writing. So really subscribing to individual writers rather than subscribing to, like, the Washington Post or to Bloomberg. And they thought, okay, well, if we just make the tools to build these sorts of individual independent writer mini-businesses, um, we can make it easier for any writer to make that jump, and then we'll just take 10%. So it's really simple. And then basically what they've had to do since then is recruiting. They've been, um, in some cases, aggressively recruiting some of these top writers who have um, you know, kind of distinct and, and very engaged followings and, and trying to convince them, hey, you should leave your cushy magazine job and come write for Substack, be your own boss, run your own newsletter and and you could make a lot of money and in some cases some of these writers are doing so although in in my estimation many are also not going to make that much money doing it but but it is this very interesting kind of unbundling of writers individual writers and bylines that you might follow away from the legacy publications that they might work at so ellen as you note in in your story uh other companies have taken note of, of substack and are trying to do what substack 
is doing. Uh, Twitter oh, totally. bought review recently. We learned recently that Facebook is is working on newsletter tools, according to the New York Times. Can Substack survive that kind of competition? Well, it's a great question. And, and yes, there were even rumors in the fall that Twitter was maybe going to buy Substack. And the Substack co-founders were like, that's not true at all. And then, of course, they bought a competitor. And, and as you mentioned, Facebook looking into this. And, and look, this, this isn't... Um, this isn't that hard to replicate. Like what Substack is selling is the convenience. They're saying basically, just come to us, give us 10%, but we'll make it so easy for you to set this up. And maybe we'll send, you know, some new readers your way, but that, that part hasn't really been realized yet. So their big concern, as I imagine they think about all the time, is that if you run a newsletter on Substack and you have, you know, tons of followers who are paying you money, at some point you're going to stop and think like, man, there are free versions of this out there that require more work to set up then I would get that last 10% for myself rather than handing it over to a platform. So they're going to have to make sure that they make it valuable enough that people are going to stay, especially when their followings get really big. So, Ellen, what, what's, what to me is most interesting about the Substack story is it, not only, you know, it, suddenly it was like a business model that like was in the right place at the exact right time, and here we are in the pandemic, and and they're able to, to monetize and, and scale really quickly. But also, I mean, it's a little bit of a throwback. We're talking about email and newsletters. Like, is, is email really the future of media? Because that's effectively what Substack's bet is. Yeah, and they have this very interesting take on all this, which is there, if you look at the way that they present their business, they're very anti-engagement. They feel like the reason that we have all this horrible, like, misinformation, polarization, um, like, like horrible sort of division in our country from, you know, that's expanded on the Internet is because of the social network's desire for engagement, that they're always looking for people who are going to engage more with content and that most engaging content is divisive or misleading or anything like that. So they're like, look, we're kind of like the zen, quiet alternative. Like, you just pay for quality. No part of our algorithm is based on engagement, you're just signing up for these writers. And so so I think they they would probably embrace this idea that they're going back to something older, because in many ways, they're trying to position themselves as different from what has led, um, you know, what has led to our, our current climate. And so when they saw when they saw that Facebook and Twitter were dipping their toes into the newsletter business, um, you know, one of the co-founders, Hamish McKenzie, who we kind of uh, profile in the story, he said, you know, this is kind of like Shell trying to say that they're going to build, um, you know, like renewable energy plants. Or they're just saying he's just trying to say that it's not in their DNA to build something that doesn't rely on engagement. And so, so my guess is they would actually kind of embrace embrace that characterization. I don't know if people are ready to have their inbox be uh, the place where they're getting all this news. And in fact. Um, my understanding is that one of the features that people really want from Substack is actually a way to read your Substack newsletters, not in your inbox. You're used to using your inbox for like to-do items and annoying emails that you don't want to look at. And maybe right. a so bundle of Substacks or a publication. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, that's what I love about um, one of the people I interviewed was a woman named Anne Helen Peterson, very right. famous writer. And she just said, this is going to end up looking like I'm writing exactly. my own publication because I want to hire an editor and a freelancer. And, so yeah. old media of them. <laughs> Good stuff, as always. Ellen Hewitt, thank you so much. Startups reporter at Bloomberg News, Joel Weber, our thanks to you as well. Editor at Bloomberg Business Week as well. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic.
from Bloomberg Radio. Earlier today, red sticky, as we like to refer to at Bloomberg, when an important headline crosses the Bloomberg. Well, it happened earlier this morning when Myanmar imposed martial law in its biggest cities following a third day of massive street protests opposing the February 1st uh, military coup. So that just happened about a uh, a week ago. So we're continuing to watch this situation, as does Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown, who in his weekly column writes that after insurrectionists stormed the U.S. Capitol, it shouldn't be a surprise that the generals in Myanmar decided to stage a coup. Let's bring in Andy for more. He joins us on the phone in New Hampshire. Andy, happy Monday. Nice to have you here make the connection um because i know you say it's not a a causal link but nonetheless what were you thinking about when you put this column together and what was the connection here between what happened yeah. in the capital and what what happened in myanmar yeah so as i say there, there, there is no causal link the connection is that democracy all over the world is in full retreat last year was just a shocking year for democracy everywhere And partly it's because of the way the governments responded to the coronavirus pandemic, um, using high-tech surveillance techniques, um, limiting travel, basically poking and prodding around into the personal lives of of their citizens, which is, you know, what authoritarian regimes have been doing in response to public health crises now um, for hundreds of years. Uh, of course, not the high-tech bit, but certainly um, the power of the state advances with epidemics. Um, there is a link between those two. And, you know, uh, as I say, so, so the, 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 the coup in, in, in Myanmar didn't come out of nowhere. We're seeing this in the Middle East. We're seeing it in Africa. Uh, and, of course, we're seeing it in, in Western countries, which pride themselves as being these bastions of, of, of liberal democracy and freedoms. That's kind of a, a dismal thing to hear that over the last year we've seen democracies in, in retreat. Is this the direction that things will continue or, or are there indications that this can be res- reversed? Um, look, this is the, the Economist Intelligence Unit, which comes up with this democracy index, has been tracking um, the advance of authoritarianism and the retreat of democracy since 2006. And last year was the worst year on record. Only 8.4% of the global population, they say, now live in what they call a full-fledged democracy. About one-third live in authoritarian uh, regimes. The U.S. is deemed under this uh, index a flawed democracy. And the worst of it is they don't really see a way back to full democracy because of the way that society has fragmented. They don't see the social solidarity there that is necessary to rebuild a full democracy in the United States. Well, and that's what complicates it, right, Andy? Because, you know, the U.S., you know, it's hard to be an arbiter of good democracy when your own democracy is flawed, right? And if you're trying to kind of help other places around the world that are struggling with democracy, it doesn't put the U.S. in a great leadership role right now. Well, that's exactly right. So, you know, President Biden has, has of course, denounced the coup, has Um, demanded a return to democracy and has said that he wants to work with like-minded democracies around the world to put pressure on the coup leaders in Myanmar to uh, uh, to reverse themselves. Well, the the problem is that right now the United States is not in a position um, to lead a a, a democratic comeback uh, in Myanmar, given that its own democracy is 
right now so so flawed um you know so uh the the you know the 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 generals in myanmar uh essentially are taking all this in their in their stride and and you know have every reason to believe that they're going to get away with it and to the extent that that biden and allies manage to punish uh, the generals, it will only push them further into into the arms of of, of China, thus advancing China's uh, a great strategy, which of course is to make the world safe for the kind of authoritarian regime mm-hmm. uh, that it is very much become. Andy, as you were reporting on this story, uh, what has to change in the United States for what did you learn about what has to change in the United States for you know the social cohesion here uh, needed to get closer to? a full democracy and not a flawed democracy. Yeah, you know, um, the, 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 the prescriptions uh, from, at least from, from the index, um, uh, really are quite nebulous on, on what America has to do. Um, the, the, the real focus is, you know, the, the consequences of failure to revive a full democracy, which is that the United States won't be able to, you know, be the shining beacon on the hill, uh, as it, you know, the shining city on the hill, the beacon of democracy uh, that has galvanized democratic forces all over the world. And East Asia, of course, is where liberal democracy, as advanced by the United States since World War II, has recorded some of its greatest successes from the Philippines to Indonesia uh, and, of course, uh, uh, South Korea, Japan, and, 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 and so on. And it's really tragic uh, to see the United States position now in these countries uh, <clears throat> so much, very much in, in, in retreat. Yeah, and it just you also get into just the difficult positions that, whether it's Tokyo, whether it's Singapore, whether it's India, it's just gotten a lot more complicated as, um, you know, these countries have gotten involved too more in uh, Myanmar. So it's it's interesting. Andy, um, thank you so much. I think this is an important story that we've got to keep a watch on uh, in terms of what's going on there and uh, what might happen next. Andy Brown is editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy. Check out uh, all of their work and Andy's work at New Econ Forum that you can find on Twitter. And of course, Andy joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, getting ready to wrap up the first trading day of the week. Let's get to the drive to the close. Larry Pitkowski is back with us, co-founder, or I should say managing partner and portfolio manager at Good Haven Capital Management. They've got roughly $160 in assets under management based in Milburn, New Jersey. And that's where we find Larry on this Monday. Uh, Good to have you here. How are you? Carol, I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing all right. Hanging in there. It's a little cold <laughs> here it on the East is, Coast. Certainly is. There's a lot of snow on the ground out here. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of snow. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about this market environment right now? 
You know, Carol, I, I think it's very important in investing to know where your circle of competence begins and ends. And I don't think, you know, making macro predictions or, you know, having a strongly held view about the level uh, of the market and where it's going is within mine. But, you know, clearly we have pockets of a lot of speculation. You have the markets overall selling it, uh, you know, higher than average multiples. And, you know, but you can either sit around and and uh, philosophize about that all day, or as I said recently, <laughs> in writing to, uh, you know, to my investors, I can get up a little earlier and go to bed a little bit later in search of mispriced securities for us rather than sitting around and ranting about what are obvious excesses in certain areas. And so that's how I choose to spend the day. Okay. So what are some of those mispriced <laughs> securities that you're finding? Well, uh, a couple of a couple of areas that we have found as of late. Uh, first of all, you know, I, I also recently wrote a bit over the last year or so about how I've I think the terms valuing growth and value investing have been somewhat misused. And so I've, over the last year or so, wrote a bit about how being a value investor uh, does not mean you can't own good quality growing companies. It does not mean you have to have a draconian negative view of the future. And it does not mean you need to own crummy shrinking businesses. And it, it, those things, and I think growth is a part of value, and I think that's all gone a little bit uh, misused from a nomenclature standpoint in the past, and I've tried to address it, and, uh, you know, I think it's important. In the past, uh, I have written about how I thought there were some interesting opportunities in the property and casualty insurance area, which was a sector that I thought had some tailwinds. You know, there aren't that many advantages to not being 25 years old, but one of them is you've seen a bunch of different cycles, and this, to me, looks like one of those periods in property and casualty insurance where it's a hard market, as they say. Uh, prices and terms are rising to favor the insureds, and I think that bodes well for well-run companies in that sector. And so we have uh, some exposure there, and we recently added Chubb, which has been well-run by Evan Greenberg for many years and uh, had some very solid earnings recently. And I think they should benefit from what looks like a healthy environment uh, for the next couple of years. So, you know, when, in the context of, of, of property and casualty insurance, a lot of people like to talk about the disruptor lemonade. Um, is that, do you see that as competition to Chubb or, or uh, you know, in that sense? I think it's important, you know, I have read the lemonade stuff. I think it is important to look at some of the new companies, which have, in many cases, you know, there's there's often an underlying, you know, reinsurance company underneath the surface who's taking on a lot of the risk. But I think uh, digitization is important in, especially, you know, insurance and, a pro you know, the primaries who face the consumer. I think it's very important. Another holding we have in the sector is progressive insurance, which has been one of the, you know, I think leaders in using uh, big data to price well in auto insurance. Though auto insurance is seeing, not seeing the same uh, positive pricing momentum you're seeing in a lot of other lines of property and casualty insurance. But I, I think it's important to pay attention if you're a business analyst, like I consider myself, to any new entrant and any new form of technology and decide if you think it could be materially disruptive or if you think the companies that you're invested in can also harness technology to their benefit. So I'm comfortable with our companies and how they're awake to some of the trends that are changing. But I'm always looking at everybody new who shows up that I am aware of.
Yeah, interesting. Um, I know, and, and like you said, I think the price increases is a key, right? Because there's been year after year of kind of fierce industry-wide price competition. So if that's changing, that, that fundamentally then maybe changes the prospect and outlook for CHEP, correct? I think it, it does, and I yeah. think, you know, we'll see how long it lasts. I, but I think you are seeing, you know, you look at the results from, you know, across uh, that sector, and you're seeing much better results than you've seen over the last couple of years. So they still have claims to deal with from, you know, natural disasters and the COVID claims. But I think the well-run ones, which are the ones that we own, should be able to do just fine for a while, to say the least. Okay, so you guys recently bought PG&E, which was a surprising thing for, for me to read. Um, it's filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy twice because of exposure to wildfire. Uh, liabilities. Um, what's the argument there? PG&E is, I think, a remade company. Now that it has come out of bankruptcy, there is a wildfire fund. They have articulated, they think earnings are going to be about a buck and then grow about 10% a year on a go-forward basis. I think there had been terrible mismanagement in the past from a standpoint of uh, how to think about safety. And I think they have done their best to try and wipe the slate clean and start over with some real protection from a liability perspective and with a go-forward earnings growth profile that looks decent and with a share price, most importantly, that looked very undervalued compared to where the peers trade. And they were also searching at the time that we bought it for a new management, and it turns out they hired the very well-respected Patty Poppy, who came from CMS Energy, and then just recently hired Adam right away from Berkshire Hathaway Energy. So those are really credible and impressive leaders that should be able to, I hope, over time, return the company to really good standing and the growth profile over the near term looks above average and the share price looks much cheaper than the peers. Yeah, a whole new risk modeling and fire spread technology that they've been deploying and laying out to further reduce wildfire risk, among other things. Um, Larry, good to, to check in with you. Stay, stay warm and take care. Larry Pitkowski, he's Managing Partner Portfolio Manager at Goodhaven Capital Management on the phone from uh, Millburn, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.